Today we finish up this series in the book of Galatians and Paul, the, the weary, faithful servant of God, old in age and coming to the end of this plea to this church that he loved. You can picture him. He tried a theological argument. He tried to show them from Scripture. He tried to warn them that it's witchcraft that's in coming into the church. And now at the end of this book, it's the only time in his 13 writings in the New Testament where it says he grabs the ink pen, pulls it out, and begins to take it from the amanuensis and the secretary. So normally when scripture was written, someone was there and they were talking and dictating, and the secretary would write the word of God. And so Paul's at the end and he grabs the pen and he says, thank you, I'll finish this letter and he has the amanuensis or the secretary set down. And he goes and grabs the pen. And he begins to write the closing of this letter with his own hand. And many have wondered, why did he write it with his own hand? Why did he close this book? It's as if he's saying, let me just say, give, let me give my last plea to you that what I'm about to say is what matters most. And so picture, if you can, if you're on the receiving end, they would send these letters to the church. And so this church that was meeting together called the Galatian Church got this letter. They opened it up, and it was most likely on a scroll. And someone stood up who was the designated reader for this group of people. They began to read, and the, the handwriting was neat because it was a secretary. That was their job, and amanuensis. And they began to write... And as this person's reading and flipping through the page, it gets to the end. It's like, wow, that handwriting is different. In fact, large letters. They turned the font size up the whole way on their iPhones. It's like it's, it's big. It's bold. It's, and they realize that it's a different handwriting than the rest. Still inspired and not inspired more because both are from the Holy Spirit. And then they recognize this is Paul closing out this letter. I bet if you received something in handwriting from someone you loved, it's a little different than opening up a card. Like, I love cards, and I love looking at the words, and I, I find great enjoyment in them, and I'm grateful and open up. It's what they write below the ink that's already there that's meaningful, sometimes even more meaningful. And Paul's saying, listen, I tried to... To walk you through all this, but can I give one last plea? I'm writing this with my own hands. And then he begins to unpack the end of this book. This week, I uh, grabbed the Bible of my mom's. And uh, can I give a plug again? And you know where I stand on this, but for a hard copy of a Bible, it's a great gift that you can pass on to your children. Um, I often, when I do funerals, I'll often ask, do you have a Bible that the person used, and I'll scan their Bible, and I'll look through it, and i see what they wrote in the margins or notes that they had that were important, and I'll often read. I took my own dad's Bible that passed away three years ago, and I saw what was important to him, and so I grabbed my mom's Bible just to see. I wanted to see her handwriting, and I didn't even realize it, but I had given this Bible to her 34 years ago, Mother's Day, and I grabbed it before she got placed in a home, and so I began to read with her own writing what was important to her. And I found all kinds of gems, all kinds of, like, I would call treasures. And one of her writings, she had a note, a handwritten note that was in her Bible, and, and it said this. It was, 
It says, um, it only takes a second to open old wounds, but it will take a lifetime to restore it again. And then I, I was looking in the front margins, and she has all kinds of verses written, and I didn't realize that this was her life verse, and if you just open it up, there's all kinds of writings, and, and, and she said, life verse, Philippians 3.13, forgetting what lies behind, eagerly pressing on towards the future God has in store, and then she put amen, amen, and amen. It was as if Paul was saying <laughs> It is inspired all of this, but remember this. This is really meaningful to me, and if I can get at your hearts, this is my last plea. It's coming from someone who loves you. I even took my own hand and wrote with large letters so that maybe if you didn't get it in the six chapters, maybe you'll get it now. And what was it that he wrote that mattered the most to him? Grab your Bibles, and we'll read it. Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, we're going to look at the end. This is his handwriting, 11 through 18. All of it's inspired. But you stand with me here in the auditoriums and if you're home or out in the FM parking lot. Let's stand as we read God's word. So picture if you can. This is him writing. All of a sudden, it's at the end. He's like, concluding thoughts. And this is what Paul writes. Would you read it with me? In verse 11 through 18, ready, read. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. You may have a seat. Every ounce, and I would enunciate and put exclamation points, every ounce of credit for who we are or what we accomplish goes to Jesus. Can I get a couple more amens out of that? It's not our own work. It's not our own doing. The reason we're able to do good is because of him. And so I picture Paul driving this home and, and reminding them, just previous he had written that the law of Christ last week we looked at, he said, do the law of Christ, which is love God and love others. Summed it all up. Not, not that you have to do anything. It's not Jesus plus something equals salvation. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And he reminds them of this. He said that that there's this group that are trying to avoid persecution. So they're trying to impress you to follow the law. And by the way, what persecution would they be receiving or not receiving? Persecution would come from the Jews and the Romans because circumcision would help the Christians to avoid unwanted wrath from the Jews. And how? Think about this. The Christians were not trying to have a competing faith. The Romans had already accepted Judaism 
as a legal religion in Rome. So if you do the law, if you keep the law of the Old Testament, you won't be, the, listen, the, the authorities won't even bother you. You can, you can leave and not have any persecution at all. But to say they were Christians, like Paul is wanting to them, and saved by grace through faith, would mean they would be persecuted. Yet, to do so would not do so would betray the work of Christ on the cross. Even in our world today, you can say anything, any name under the sun, but as soon as you say Jesus in a public school setting, at a NASCAR race, at a sports event, there have been people who have asked to give prayers. I had occasion one time they asked to pray and they asked me to pray. And they reminded me that, hey, this is a very inclusive group of people. So be careful how you say and speak. In other words, don't say the name Jesus because Jesus is offensive. You can say Buddha, you can say Allah, you can say Jim, you can say any other God, little God name. But as soon as you say Jesus, you are saying that it's only through him exclusively that we get to God. And I'm going to say, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what the word of God says. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus, John 14, 6. And so this group was trying to pull in all kinds and, and, and reminding them, hey, you won't be persecuted if you do it by works because it's already an accepted religion in the society today. These imposters were in teaching witchcraft. And we're trying their hardest to win moreover because they believed in a works-driven salvation. And Paul says, don't let them impress you by means of the flesh. Have you ever witnessed someone trying their hardest to impress you to gain their favor? All of us have experienced it, haven't we, in some form or fashion? It plays out in so many areas in our lives today. We end up doing whatever we can to gain the favor of people and end up doing things we most likely would have never done before. And if you are not gaining the attention of those you crave the most to get, often you'll end up doing the things that your character is put at risk for. I keep reminding myself when people wanted me to do other things, pull me away, I said, hey, listen, this isn't my home right here. <laughs> my home's in heaven. And I'm going to look a lot different. I'm an alien here. I'm a, you know, I'm just, I'm, I, I'm, this is, my citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. So I'm going to look different than what the world says is acceptable. I'm going to do what Jesus wants me to do. And Paul is saying, don't let them impress you with the works-based religion that will make them look like them. You want to look like Jesus. Then he says, even those that are promoting the law can't even keep it for themselves. It's like it's craziness to try to do so. And he said, they are tempted to boast in the flesh. By the way, that's a delicate line that you come from. We want to exalt Jesus. We want to publicly do good works. We want, we want our lights to shine so that the world knows that, that, that there's a Father God in our world. But we always have to check our motive. Why am I putting out what I've done? Why am I showing the world that I can do good deeds through Christ? Why are we showing and promoting? The reason is to point people to Jesus. And Matthew said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 15 to 16, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket, hides it, 
Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. And he said, in the same way, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. It all comes back to motive. I love the quote that Francis Chan had regards to God and our expression of worship. So when we come in on Sunday, why do we worship singing? Why did you come in and sing today? We came in to sing so that we can exalt our God. We're saying, God, we worship you. We don't worship this building. We don't worship a pastor. We don't worship the worship leaders. We don't worship the tech people. We don't worship anything but you. Worship is our expression to say, you are awesome, God. In fact, anything, you are the only thing that should be attributed as awesome. And so we, it's our chance Francis Chan said this in regards to worship. He said, the point is not to completely understand God, but to worship him. Let the very fact that you cannot know him fully lead you to praise him for his infiniteness and grandeur. He said, isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate enough? Like, we can't even describe... Have you ever tried to describe God and what he means to you and how big he is to someone who has never heard of him? Like, I can't put an adjective big enough. Like, there's nothing. We we, we couldn't even exaggerate how awesome and awesome he is. It's impossible. But that's the God that Paul is looking at this group, and he's writing with his own hand, and he's saying, listen, don't let them impress you with the works. The works have been done. It is finished at the cross. God did it all through his son, Jesus Christ. You don't no longer need to do. You just need to accept it is finished for you. So he's, he's preaching this message with his own hand to them today. The irony is that these very people who argue for self-salvation are the very ones who don't measure up to their own standards. Because none of us do. Just remember this truth if you want to stay on track. If there is any good thing in you or from you, it didn't come from you, it comes from Jesus. We don't even measure up. I like what A.W. Pink said many years ago. He said, the greatest mistake made by people is hoping to discover in themselves what can only be found in Jesus Christ. We don't measure up. And the only way we measure up is through Jesus Christ. So this group was saying, no, if you do these things and you follow me and they wanted them to convert, that way they could have more notches on their belt. And if they had more notches on their belt, then they got closer to God. You don't measure up. We, we won't measure up. The only way we measure up is through God. I remember as a kid... I was always the smallest kid in the room in, in, in grade school. And then freshman in high school, I was 4'11 and a half and 95 pounds. And I was just a little tyke. And I grew 10 inches from my sophomore year to my senior year. But I was fast and quick and made up for my, my size and speed and intensity. And, and, and in any case, I remember as a kid going to the amusement park of carnivals, I couldn't wait till I was, could measure up and get on the bumper cars. When I grew up, you had to stand and you had to be a certain height. I was 10 years old, and I still couldn't drive the bumper cars, and six-year-olds were getting on, and I was upset. I remember I was standing there like this, just hoping beyond hope. Did I grow any? And I just didn't measure up. And I just think, man, I know how to drive that better than that six-year-old does. But you don't measure up, Jim. You don't measure up. And I remember finally when I measured up, 
I got in there and I hit everybody I could hit. And I went 110 mile an hour and I went in the wrong direction. So I've been measuring up for a long time. And the truth is this, this group was saying that you don't measure up until you do. And I want to say, listen, come over here. When I stand at this line to measure up for God, Jesus stand in my place. He measures up for us. Man, yeah, praise God for the grace of Jesus. And Paul is looking at this group and saying, don't be impressed with their acts. Because even their own measuring system that they have, they will fall short too. Because one sin separates us from the grace and the love of Jesus Christ and salvation. No one can get to God except through a perfect redeemer, Jesus Christ. You won't win friends and influence people in the world by preaching Jesus. <laughs> I've had people say that to me many times. Jim, do you really believe that Jesus is the only way? In this community, sit down. But there's all kinds of ways to God. There's, isn't there all kinds of ways to God? And I said, no, there's all kinds of ways to hell, but there's only one way to God. It's through Jesus Christ. Yet that is exclusive, and people don't like it. We live in a world that's inclusive. Let's bring everyone in. Everyone have their way. Everyone agree. No, I'm saying there's only one way, God said, through his son, Jesus Christ. You trust in him, you measure up through the blood on the cross and the death of Jesus Christ. See, the danger... And this is, Paul is saying, they're trying to make a good showing in the flesh. And the danger is that we think doing something external will contribute to our salvation. And you'll still see people in our world today that believe that. Don't ever think it's up to you to measure up. It was up to Jesus and he already did it for us. Law produces anxiety and worry. Grace produces joy and security. Can I get an amen for that? J.D. Greer, I think, summarized this so well with this quote. This is what he said. Just listen to that. He says, there are times even now when I look at my heart and I wonder how I could possibly have been born again. Moments in which I care more about what's coming on TV that night than I do the spread of the gospel in the world. Moments when God feels distant, almost like a stranger. My emotions for him are lukewarm, if not downright cold. I don't jump out of bed hungry for his word, and my mind wanders all over the place when I pray. Or I fall to that same old temptation again for the thousandth time. Or moments I doubt God's goodness, even his existence. It's not how I feel all the time or even most of the time, but it's how I feel some of the time. And then the question hits me again, wait a minute, am I really saved? How could it be and still have feelings like this? What do you do in that moment? Pray the sinner's prayer again? Should I call my old church and have the pastor warm up the baptismal waters? The answer is relatively simple in that moment. Keep believing the gospel. Keep your hand on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how you feel at any given moment, how encouraged or discouraged you feel about your spiritual progress, how hot or cold your love for Jesus, what you should be doing is always the same. Resting in the gospel. Rest in his finished work. 
That's all you can do. It's all you need to do. It's all God has commanded you to do. It's only by grace through faith that we're saved. And by the way, you've heard me say this, and and Paul is saying, listen, I'm putting this in my own words. Don't listen to what they're saying. It's by the grace of Jesus Christ that you are saved. Otherwise, law produces anxiety and worry, but grace produces joy and security. And then he says this in verse 14. Look what he says. He writes this with his own hand. He says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let me just give a little context for a second here. To us, the cross is a beautiful thing. In fact, we'll buy gold chains and hang around our necks. We'll, we'll turn a brutal, rugged cross into a piece of gold. And we'll look at it and say, isn't the cross beautiful? We have velvet crosses. We have plastic crosses. We have crosses that, that we, we, we even decorate with. Some people even put crosses on tattoos on their bodies. But during this time, the context was with Paul was saying, I boast in the cross. It'd be like us saying, and and us boasting today in in a brutal object like the electric chair and getting a necklace and hanging an electric chair and say, I boast in the electric chair. You see, this was a brutal way to die during this century when Jesus walked on earth. It's like us us celebrating lethal injection. It'd be like us praising God for lynching robes. There has never been a more brutal way to die than to die on a cross. You and I couldn't even have watched the death of Christ without turning away. Now Paul says, I boast in that cross. And they're saying, what are you saying? That's crazy. How can you boast in something that was meant to be the most brutal death? And Paul says, I boast in it because my Savior went there and he died for my sins and all the future sins and every sin that would ever be on earth. But one day he would not only die there, he would go to the grave and be resurrected. That's why I boast. That's my Savior. Boasting is more than bragging. It means to glory in, to trust in, to revel in, to rejoice in. And it absorbs our time and energy. In a word, it becomes our obsession. The cross was not a symbol Christians wore around their necks back then, but Paul is saying the cross spells the end to good works, religion, and a self-help salvation. Amen? Aren't you glad we don't have to earn our way to God? No, we couldn't even do it anyhow. As I was reading through my mom's Bible, I found this nugget of truth, and it was so good to spend time just see what was important to mom. And I came across this incredible, I don't even know where she heard it, but she wrote it down, and it's John 3.16. It's the gospel in a nutshell. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we won't perish, but believe in him, we'll have eternal life. And so it broke down every phrase. Just listen to this. It's just so good. She wrote, God, the greatest lover, so loved, the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, 
His only begotten Son, the greatest gift. That whosoever the greatest opportunity believeth the greatest simplicity. In Him, the greatest attraction. Should not perish the greatest promise, but the greatest difference. Have the greatest certainty. Everlasting life, the greatest possession. That's what we have in Christ. And Paul is looking at this group and saying, I'm writing it with my hand. Listen, this is from my heart. And as this person was reading it to the group at Galatia, he was saying, listen, Paul's trying to say, this is what matters the most. It's not by works you are saved. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he said, boast on that. Boast in that. Apart from the cross of Jesus, there is no hope, none. God is the one to be praised, not our transformation. But there are those who object the cross. And there are many objections to the cross, but let me just give you five objections to those outside of those who don't believe that Jesus is the only way and would follow another religion. The first objection is the intellectual objection. They would say the cross is foolish. Like, that's stupid. Many people think it's absurd to think that a dying Jew on a Roman cross could save anything when he died between two criminals. The people of the world look at that and say, that's your king? That's who you worship? You're telling me that he's the king of kings and lord of lords? Why doesn't he come down from that cross? That is foolishness. That's the intellectual argument. The other objection is the religious objection. The cross is intolerant. In other words, this has to do with the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus plainly said he is the only way. In fact, Luke said in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, salvation is found in no other name but in who? Jesus. You see, we don't like exclusivity in our world. But when it comes to salvation, it's only through Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. The third objection is the personal objection. And people would say the cross is humiliating. By the way, that humbles the proud. You see, the gospel announces there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. It's done versus do. And Paul is saying it is done. It is finished. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, you don't have to do anything to get to God except accept this by grace. The fourth objection is called the moral objection. And they would say the cross, it's too demanding. You don't really want Jesus until you give up your sinful way and agree with God about your sin. Like, the moral objection is saying, you mean I have to take personal responsibility for my sin? Yeah, you do, and you need to give it over to Jesus Christ. The final objection that I come across is this one. It's the political objection. And they would say the cross is too subversive. The objection to the lordship of Jesus. Can I just pull away and just say this for a second and and I'll move on. Our allegiance should only be to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And hear me out. 
Jesus is neither Democrat nor Republican. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he rules the world. Can I get another amen out of that? That's where my allegiance is to. And my Bible says that the heart of the king is in the hand of God and he controls his ways. So no matter what's happening in our world, and my Bible says in Timothy to pray for your leaders, which means pray for those in charge in your president. president. And then I remember this, that my king, that part of the earthly king, we would say the president, is in the hand of God. And God directs his path no matter who it is and my responsibility is to pray my responsibility isn't to separate my responsibility isn't throw them under the bus my responsibility is say God would you lead them please and here's the problem so many of us look in present time well this is in our world God sees thousands of years down the road how he uses these individuals and I believe my God works all things out for good that are called to love him You see, that's the perspective. We have this fast food mentality. I want to see it now. You told me last week the reaping and sowing message. We need the law of later. And some of you now are like, you're sitting in the seats like, I'm reading my Bible, I'm having devotions, I'm doing all this stuff. And Pastor Jim, why is my life the way it is? It's because years ago, months ago, you sowed that. But whatever you're sowing today, there's a harvest of righteousness coming. So trust in the Lord. The political objection is the cross is too subversive. Then he says this. He writes it with his own hand in verse 15. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. If you're here today with parents, they'll explain it to you later. Means anything. What counts is what? The new what? Creation. What counts is the new creation. I picture him tired and weary. I love this. Because Paul is saying, you can't make an old heart new on your own. You know, sometimes we forget about the benefits of our salvation. I've been saved for 54 years by God's grace. And I'm grateful that God saw fit in my life. Because I would have been an ornery mess for a long time. I'm just telling you. And by God's grace, he saved me when I was young. And the truth is this, and it's worth hearing this again and again, and we need, probably need to hear this all the time. When we come to Christ as new believers and get saved and trust in the work of Jesus, statistics show, and I just want you to do a little heart check. The first year that you're saved, you will share Christ 21 times with other people. 21 times. Why? Because your old heart was made new. You have this new fire, this Holy Spirit. who is He now lives in you, and you are experiencing and reaping the benefits of salvation. And there's this new heart in you that was old. Like the day before you got up, dead. You woke up this day, ooh. And so you share that, and there's this fire. It's one of the many reasons I love meeting and sitting with new believers. Because they fan my flame. And you know what happens by the time you're seven years old in the faith? You know how often you share your faith? Zero. Zero. You share your faith with others. Zero. So what's that mean? If you're not careful and you're not diligent in your walk, by the time you're 14 years old in the faith, by the time you're 54 years old in the faith, you don't even care about lost people. And Paul is saying... 
there was a miracle that took place. A heart that was dead, Sean Penn's movie years ago, Dead Men Walking. Some of you might remember that movie. There's a scene that those that were on death row, every time the, the gates of the prison cell was open and they walked on the galley, as they walked there, they would yell, the guards would yell, dead man walking. And there are so many dead men and women walking in our world and we don't even see them nor care about them. Think about what God did for your heart. Like, you should have jumped out of bed this morning and say, I'm a miracle. You laugh at me, but it's the truth. That's what Paul says, keep up your spiritual fervor. Why? So people look at you and say, man, there's something different about you. Instead of just blending in with the rest of the world. Yeah, I got saved when I was 17 at a camp. It was great. It was a mountaintop experience. Came on, led all my neighbors to Christ, all my friends. In fact, I led the whole ninth grade to Christ. But you know, I don't have that same fire anymore. Why? Because you're not diligent, seeking and believing and spending time with God. Your heart has changed. And he's saying you're a new creation. You went from death to life. Like, that's great news in case you haven't checked lately. That should change the way we live, shouldn't it? And it wasn't anything we did. And Paul is saying, you are a new creation. Don't listen to these law-abiding people. Can I ask you a really personal question? When's the last time you got really stoked about your salvation? Honestly, parents, when's the last time you sat with your kids and said, it is really good. I am so proud that you love Jesus and that you have a new heart in you. And by the way, I'm excited that I am too. You see, but we drift, don't we? Kind of get back in old habits and we think, well, I just want to stay here. No. The closer you get to Jesus, the more time you spend with him, it changes your life forever, not just a moment. Let me pull away and ask this question. Would people that you work with, your clients, your coworkers, your students, would your neighbors across the street Would your very kids say, my daddy and my mommy, boy, they are so eternally grateful for their salvation. I witness it every day of my life. Would your grandchildren notice that, wow, papa, grandma, man, they love Jesus. I want what grandpa has and what grandma has. Paul's saying, you are a new creation for crying out loud. Don't forget it. It's been done. And then he wraps up, just picture him as he gets to the end. In verse 17, he says this, or 16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule and to the Israel of God. From now on, Let no one cause me trouble, Paul says, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. By the way, that Greek word for marks is stigmata. It's where we get the seal that a rancher puts on his cattle and says, I bear the marks of Christ. I have been 
sealed with the Holy Spirit. I have the scars of walking this life. You know, many of us are trying to stay away from hardship. Many of us are trying to stay away from steps of faith or risk or dependent on God because it's too hard. Paul says, man, I got scars all over me. Listen, if anyone could earn their salvation, I'm pretty close. <laughs> but it doesn't, he says. It's only through the grace of Jesus Christ. In fact, look at Paul's life. You want to see a picture of someone who has the stigmata, the marks? Look at 2 Corinthians 11. This is, he could have been the ones that said, hey, you need to earn your way, but he knew better. Look at 2 Corinthians 11 and look at verse 24. He says this, Paul says this. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. He says, I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold, I have been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Who is the weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? And he's looking at these people. He's saying, I got the marks. But it wasn't because of the scars and the stigmata. It was because of the marks on Jesus Christ that I'm saved. And then he gives his classic Paul closing. And he says in verse 18, the grace, the Greek word charis, of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. In other words, he said, may grace be deeply and personally yours. And after he wrote that, he went over and he just dropped the mic. Grace. It's all about grace. It's ordinary people with problems and faults and stubborn habits and personal weaknesses can be used mightily in the mission of God because it's not about their ability to do things for God, but about his ability to work through them. It's us focusing on Christ. One person said this about works-driven people. He said, to focus on how I'm doing more than what Christ has done is Christian narcissism. The ironic thing about legalism is that it not only doesn't make people work harder, it makes them give up. Moralism produces, doesn't produce morality, rather it produces, produces immorality because you can't measure up. And so you just give up. Just go back to Genesis 3. We have been addicted to setting our sights on something or someone smaller than Jesus. I'm grateful for this as we wrap up this section in this book. The gospel doesn't make bad people good. It makes dead people alive. And until we get that down, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but for the grace of God, we will never find salvation in anything other than Jesus alone.
So they close the scroll. And the person who read, just like I did, from the Word of God, they walk away. And Paul, on the other end, drops the mic and says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And it's only through the grace of God and the death on the cross that you and I could ever be saved. It was because when he went to the cross, he said, it is finished. Lord, help us today. Guys, sometimes I wonder what it will take for us to fully understand and me to fully understand the gravity and the weight and the cost and the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross. And Sometimes I wonder if we really have captured how good it is to know Jesus personally. But Lord, I know that your grace continues to encourage and love and, and you never give up on us. But Lord, sometimes we just need to go back to the cross and remind ourselves what took place there and began again each day by saying, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. It was because of your work there that we have hope in the middle of a pandemic because Jesus is the hope of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.